You're listening to a provocation from the 2013 World's Literature Festival. Writers from across the world gather to discuss the art and craft of writing. This year's salon is on the theme of ways of reading and ways of writing. Darling Street is the second in a trilogy of books exploring different London streets and writing for publishers Hamish Hamilton. During the past five years I spent writing and researching this book. I became curious about the emerging new di digital technologies, particularly the multimedia capabilities of tablets and smartphones. I began to ask the questions, could these new devices be used to enable my readers to further engage with the places, history, stories and people I write about? I was particularly interested in using GPS-activated technology to take my readers on location, to experience these stories in place, a sort of contemporary way of conducting psychogeography in the city. So in 2012, after gathering an expert team of app developers, designers, sound artists and filmmakers together, I applied to the Arts Council for funding for this project, and I spent the best part of the last year developing the Diamond Street app. This may at first seem like an odd choice for a social historian writer with absolutely no previous experience or skills in this type of new digital medium. But from the first time I heard about GPS, or oh sorry, technology being used in locative apps, I immediately recognised what a great tool this could be for me. I originally trained as an artist and I've always worked in very multimedia ways. My creative practice currently involves writing, of course, alongside walking, intensive archival research, photography, audio recording, and filmmaking. A digital app seemed to offer a good platform for my readers to experience my work, not just as a printed text, but also through digital space, new media, and in real time. Allowing my audience to immerse themselves physically in the text, by walking in and through the locations I write about, hearing those stories in place. Before starting this project, I spent a long time thinking about what a digital app could offer that a printed book could not, and how new technologies could be used not to replace, but to enhance and support a book. These are some of the questions I asked. What if while standing in front of a building whose history I've described, readers could also hear memories about that place from people who've lived and worked there. What if archival images and documents about that place could also arise whilst readers were listening to these stories, along with historical data, excerpts from literature and printed material from the book? What if film footage could pop up as you walked around showing hidden locations both above and below the places where you walked? What if there was a gaming element in the app, making readers watch, work, search and investigate a place before the next part of the story was revealed to them? What if readers could conduct their own investigations about these places, either virtually or in reality, by visiting archives, sending images and comments directly to me, changing and adding to the story all the time? The options seem limitless. Work on the app began with paper plans, working alongside co-producer Simon Porter, the digital arts officer for Metaculture, who collaborated on the project. We brainstormed on my original idea. 
to pick up on traces of the history of the place as she wandered around, with images, audio and text being activated by geotechnology. We literally ripped the printed book apart, and imagine these pages scattered around the Hatton Garden area, transformed into different digital media, which would be activated as users pass through specific locations. The idea was to develop an experimental drift through an area, rather than a guided chronological walk. From paper designs formulated during this process, we developed the rough outline for a design for both the virtual armchair version of the app and the GPS on location versions. The next stage of development involves storyboarding the app, drastically editing content from the book, deciding eventually on 12 separate story zones within the Hatton Garden area where the app would be activated. The GPS mode of the app is predominantly an audio experience with images. The next stage got a lot more techie. What you see here is the back end of the app. The orange areas denote location zones where GPS will activate. The blue diamonds represent different audio stores, stories which come to life as you walk towards them. A period of intense testing ensued with extensive notes on any issues on site, such as leakage of sound files from one zone to another, or places where sound files overlapped. These were then reported back to the developers, Calvium, who made continual adjustments to the back end of the app. There were many small problems to iron out and a lot of testing was needed before the app was working well. And most of the testing took place on site throughout the coldest winter on record. And I can't say it was all an enjoyable experience. But as I started to hear those stories come to life in place as I wandered around, it was really exciting. <coughs> the Dime Street app has now been published and is available, thanks to the Arts Council, as a free download, both in the iTunes app store and for the Android market. And as far as I know, this app is the first immersive and embodied publishing model enabled by new technologies that transforms content from a literary non-fiction book about place into a dynamic interactive walk around the city streets. Um, now I'm just going to demonstrate as best as I can here how the app works. So when you open the app, there are different options on the menu bar of, on the bottom of the screen. To be in GPS mode, you need to be on location in the house and garden area. Every person who uses this GPS-activated experiential level of the app will have an entirely different and personal experience, depending on where they walk and how they interact with both the environment and the app. Within the geographical scope of the story, the soundscape combines with the actual street sounds in a tour that merges the past, the present and the fantastic. So this is the screen that would pop up, and let's pretend we're in the Hatton Garden area, um, you've got your headphones in your ears, your phone in your pocket, and you start walking. We're about to go on a journey through the streets of Hatton Garden, an area of diamond dealing, medieval rocks, and hidden rivers. On our way, Rachel Richenstein, the author of Diamond Street, the hidden world of Hatton Garden, will introduce us to some of the people and the stories which hold the secrets to the streets around you now. As you wander the area, voices will appear, but if they fade away, don't panic. Just retrace your steps. And if you hear this sound, sneak a peek at your phone. You'll see why. There's no set route and no set time it'll take you. Just listen and explore. But be careful where you walk. Your ears may deceive you. 
So that's the introduction. So let's imagine we've started walking, and now I'm going to we're going to be walking along Farringdon Road, and this is what you'd hear. Where we're standing is the deep river valley of the Fleet. You can't see it now. It's right underneath us in the sewer, Basiljet sewer that flows down the centre of the road and comes out under Blackfriars Bridge. And either side of Farringdon Road, you can see very steep hills going up on either side. And you can imagine really quite a large river at one stage has come down there. I have that sense that London is a magical city. And if you want to stand here in the fleet, you're in the valley of the fleet, let there be that sense of the rush of the water underneath, even though you can't see it. And you pick it up. And you then realize that this water took the refuse of London and also the, the carcasses of the animals that were slaughtered in Smithfield Market. And so there was this lovely triple movement in time between the active herds that were marched across London to this particular spot, and to the leather that was cured and made for clothes, and also to the leather becoming books which are now being recirculated again. That was the voice of Ian Sinclair that you heard there along with the geologist. And part of the idea the app for my research, I took so many walks around the area repeatedly, moving through the same territory with all sorts of different experts. So you had you know, visionaries like Ian Sinclair talking about the area, geologists, medieval historians, and I just thought it would be really exciting for my readers to be able to actually hear those voices in place. And at the beginning, um, when you heard that little noise that pops up, that um, if you're walking in space, you'd actually see images, archival images, so images like this uh, engraving of the Fleet River. Um, moving on to the timeline version of the app, which is a kind of armchair experience, um, just kind of swiping timeline through place. So we go back to the 16th century, this kind of Elizabethan map of the area. And if you were to click on the diamond icon there, you get, uh, and you get bits of text from the book. Um, and various images and stories swiping through time. And then also, along with the kind of oral testimony of, of the walks, there's also certain legends and myths of Hatton Garden, which have been reconstructed in the app by actors' voices. Bleeding Heart Yard. Tucked away to the south of Greville Street is Bleeding Heart Yard. See if you can find it, and we will tell you the legend of this cobbled courtyard. There is a legend, and I give it as such, that this Sir Christopher Hatton married a beautiful gypsy girl who bewitched him. And the price she had to pay, according to her compact with the evil one, was her soul and her body after a given time. When that time arrived, the devil duly came for her, and seizing her, bore her aloft, and whilst in the air, he rent her in pieces and threw her still palpating heart to the earth. And where it fell was known as Bleeding Heart Yard. So these are just some of the stories, but when you're actually in place, standing there is very magical. Um, so for those of you that don't know, the Hatton Garden area is London's diamond and jewellery quarter. There are very many other stories um, attached to it. And 
will start to move through time um, to predominantly the beginning of the uh, 20th century and where we start to come into kind of living memory. And I'd say the kind of core of the book is the oral interviews that I've conducted uh, with people who've lived and worked there. And then again, that some of the sound files are kind of reconstructions of those interviews in place. This is called Kosher Cafe. Here, on the corner of Leather Lane and Greville Street in the 1930s, the London Diamond Boys began its Diamond Dean days in a smoky little cafe. Mrs. Cohen's cafe was filled with smoke and the sound of English. Everyone sounded like they were arguing all the time. The place was full of refugees from Belgium, Austria, Germany and Hungary. Some must have managed to keep hold of a few stones and start dealing. There were a few Russian dealers too who had arrived in the area much earlier and were more established. I only remember seeing men in there, all dressed similarly to my father. There were a few orthodox dealers, but most were politicized, secular Jews like my father. The main languages spoken were Yiddish and German. There's just a little example. There's, there's uh, well over an hour's worth of kind of audio files in the app. I just want to play you a little bit of this file, um, one, so you can hear one of the many voices, that kind of beautiful the accents of uh, the interviewees. Diamond deal. I started off in 1940s when Belgium was invaded, and I came to England when I was eight years old. Well, I was a young man. And the older generation was couldn't uh, take any interest of the young people. In the middle of the day, all these men appeared in long black coats with wide brimmed hats, and they should sort of congregate in little groups, or they were fast walking to one end for the other. They never go beyond Hat and Garden, not one end or the other. My mother's passport had had a visa for a month, and my mother had to leave the country. So I'm an illegal immigrant, so don't tell anyone. So again, back to the timeline. So there's, there's text and sound. Um, and moving more into the present day, this is one of the goldsmiths that I interviewed in his kind of fantastic subterranean basement where he has worked on for the last Working with gold. Gold is the most extraordinary material. It has this life of its own. It, it seems to withstand fire, you can heat it up and a piece of pure gold go through all the different stages of the colour of the red hot to almost white hot before it melts and then when it cools down almost like some kind of magic uh, it looks the same as it did before you put the fire on it. Ancient people must have found that truly astonishing when they were used to fire being able to destroy anything and gold seems almost impervious to it. Okay, so the, there's different elements of the app. Um, there was also four short films specially commissioned um, for the app relating to the Hatton Garden story, which kind of take chapters from the book um, and they've been kind of filmed in place, uh, narrated by me with abridged excerpts from the book. And I just want to uh, finish by playing you um, 
one of these short films when I took a trip down to the remains of the arena foods. Subterranean. I awoke at dawn to know the cast that dried as them in morning. I made my way towards the meeting point, just south of Holborn Viaduct, where I saw a small crowd of people along with several tent water workers standing beside an open manhole in the street. A man with the stature of a knight introduced himself as Rob Smith, Thames Water's chief sewer flusher. A number of other Thames Water staff began lowering ropes into the manhole and testing equipment. Standing beside the dark void in the pavement, I watched Rob descend into the blackness below. Underneath Patton Garden is a labyrinthine network of brick-lined sewer tunnels containing the remains of the river fleet. Desperate to get down to the lost river, I pestered Thames Water for over a year, eventually managing to organise a trip. We had only a brief window of time before the tidal waters below reached the roof of the storm drain. I followed the... Oh. <laughs> Excuse me. What's happened there? You need to agree. I need to agree. Do you have to stay on that? Sorry. It's just the uh, it's just the life cycle. Sorry. Then a slippery vertical ladder with a rope clicked onto the, the rope clicked onto the back of my harness to ensure I did not yeah. fall. I reached the bottom of the ladder and stepped warily into a thick, black, squelchy substance. Bob's voice echoed along the passageway behind me, telling me to move towards him so the rest of the group could come down. I started walking forward into the darkness, the sound of the sirens and the traffic above fading away until all I could hear was the constant bleep bleep of the gas monitor around my neck along with the noise of my short, sharp breathing. Adjusting the torch on my helmet, I began to see the perfectly intact brickwork of Bazalgette sewers as I walked out of time through Victorian London. I stood still, trying to catch my breath, to calm my rising claustrophobia, to adjust to the extreme environment. The air temperature was tepid, at times almost hot. A few feet above us, the pavements were still covered in ice. We moved deeper and deeper underground. Soon, we passed a sign on the wall for the fleet main line. We were getting closer. We twisted and turned our way along many more dark repairways, grateful for our kit and our competent guards. The brick ceiling above was temporarily lit by the beams of light from our helmets as we looked around. Dark shadows moved across the walls, Victorian ghouls. A fossilized pair of tights hung from a stone column above us like a fisherman's net. The roof of the chamber dripped with a sticky liquid, and small white balls were stuck to the surface. Flushes had made their way down to the remains of the Fleet River and were standing in the water below, encouraging them to fall. Shaking slightly, 
I arrived at the bottom and took my first step into the former river. We stood in silence for some time in the water of the vast chamber. A deep rumbling noise came from overhead. Exhilarated to be finally standing in the lost river, I spoke enthusiastically to one of the other flushes. He told me he loves his job because it is never busy down there. Not like London, he said. <laughs> Not like London. It wasn't. We were physically underneath the city that had entered a different realm. There was nothing in that space apart from ourselves to suggest we were in the 21st century. I had managed to achieve something which I had been trying to do since I started this project. To peel back the veil of time, to glimpse a moment of the past, to walk in a landscape from a bygone era. Okay, so that's one of the um, films, and I'd just like to end by really asking questions. Um, do you think this type of project will form the future of publishing? Will all authors and publishers need to be thinking about enhanced multimedia projects using new technologies to support and promote their printed books? Or are authors becoming distracted from the business of writing by engaging in this new type of media project? Thank you.